Hey, hey, welcome. If it's your first time here, I'm Kara Steinman, founder of the Ravel Collective and host of this podcast. Today, I'm talking to Carol Cox, who is the founder and CEO of Speaking Your Brand, a coaching and training company helping high-performing, purpose-driven women entrepreneurs and professionals create their signature talks and thought leadership platforms. Carol is the host of the weekly five-star rated Speaking Your Brand podcast, which is excellent. If you have not checked it out, go do that. And during election seasons, she serves as a Democratic political analyst on TV news. She was named as one of Orlando's Women of the Year in 2021 and has been featured in Forbes. Through her company and content, her mission is to empower more women to find and use their voice, to tell the stories that need to be told, and to activate ideas for change. I loved this chat with Carol, and if you're someone who shares our passion for empowering women, you are going to as well. Let's go. We're going to talk about using your voice as a woman entrepreneur, why that's important, and how we can recognize when it's time to do that. Um, And I'll let Carol just kind of explain what her background is a little bit and where she's coming from with this whole jam. Thanks, Kara. Well, I'm so glad to be on the podcast. And so my company is called Speaking Your Brand, and we work with women entrepreneurs and executives on their public speaking and thought leadership. And the reason we focus on women is because I have always had kind of like this this thread in my life where I wanted to support women. And I've always wanted to understand women's role in our society. And frankly, like (laughs) why we have been second-class citizens for so long. I remember when I was a teenager, probably early high school, and I was learning, you know, studying history, must have learned about either the feminist movement in the early part of the 20th century when women finally got the right to vote, or maybe it was 60s and 70s. And I came home one day and I was like, mom, like thinking to myself, like, why do we need feminism? Of course, women are equal. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm just as smart as all the boys in my class. I'm just as competent. I'm just as capable. I can do and be anything that they can be like, why? Why would people even think for a moment that women are lesser than men? Like, it, honestly, like it challenged, like, it was like such a cognitive dissonance. It didn't make any sense to me. And so I studied history, particularly women's history and gender studies in undergraduate and graduate school. I think to solve that question for myself, like, why, like, how did we get here? And yes. so, and so that's just kind of been this thread now throughout my entire career. That makes perfect sense. I studied psychology in college and I, ever since, I'm obsessed. Because I need to understand why are you the way you are? Why are we the way we are? And so you're untangling this like, it doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense to me. We're probably around the same age because I remember my mom growing up, she was always like, you can do anything you want. You can do anything you want. Meanwhile, she has no idea that I'm six years old and no women can't get a business license without their husband co-signing. I just found that out recently and that blew my mind. Yes, exactly. Up until the like basically around when I was born in the yeah. 1970s, women couldn't get mortgages without a man signing off for them, the credit cards. I mean, all of these things. And you think, well, of course women were dependent on men. So it's almost like this, like this vicious circle, you know, where it's like, well, women can't take care of themselves. Well, yes, because you didn't let us <laughs> take care of ourselves. Yeah. So what did, what did you discover through your, throughout your studies? I wish there was a simple answer to this. I you know, know, obviously like it goes back like obviously thousands and thousands of years and I know there's been a lot of, you know, talk in anthropology circles and archaeology, you know, were there matriarchies ever as opposed to patriarchies and kind of, you know, the evidence is, a, is they can't really quite tell exactly what was going on, you know, in certain uh periods of time. You know, I would say that obviously physically 
we are, we tend to be weaker than men, like just our physical strength, different hormones and, you know, upper body strength and things like that. I think that has part to do with it. Obviously we have to carry children. So in a sense that, you know, it's such a beautiful thing, yet it also is something that puts us at a disadvantage, whether it's, you know, during pregnancy or during uh, breastfeeding or whatever it happens to be like with certain things that women have to do that men don't have to do. And so like, I feel like these like gender roles kind of got themselves set up. And then at some point, some men were like, oh, well, we like having control and power because who doesn't? And then they decided, well, let's just kind of uh, consolidate all this power for ourselves. And it just continues on. Yeah. And then it's hard to break down. Especially no one wants to give up power. Nobody wants to give up power and nobody wants to be burned at the stake. Right, exactly. Right. And to speak up. And that's what happens to women who do challenge the status quo and to do and who speak up or who challenge traditional gender roles. If you think about the witches who were burned, whether it was, you know, in Salem, Massachusetts or in the Inquisition in Europe, a lot of them were women who were herbalist. So they were working with herbs and plant medicines that were very common at the time to help treat ailments. But then doctors, male doctors, didn't want these women to supersede on their territory. So oh then they God. were seen as threats to that community or to that society. And so then they were reprimanded very severely. And then other women saw that. And then they're like, well, I don't want to put my neck out either because, yeah. I, you know, survival is a very real thing. Yeah, for sure. I also heard that a lot of the women who were burned at the stake were widows that had property. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. I don't, I can't remember if anybody, I'm sure it was a raveler. If anybody remembers telling me this, there was a book that talked about it. So please remind me, maybe we'll put it in the show notes. But I thought, I'm like, oh my God, of course, like what better way to take control of more land, which has always been, you know, they're not making any more of it. So than just to get rid of the person standing in the way. Yes, like any right, oh. independent women in general. And then, you know, so we think about it nowadays, like, well, okay, well, no one's burning women at the stake anymore. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, we see women get pilloried online, harassed online mm-hmm. and social media and the news media. And that impacts us as women because we feel like, well, if that person who has all the resources available to her, you know, has a social status, has maybe wealth, has power in some sense. And this can happen to her. What about me? And so, you know, we. Uh, this is why women speaking up is so important. Yet I know there's so many fears, whether they're fears we, we are very conscious of, or there's like these baked in kind of genetic and epigenetic fears that we carry with us as women. Totally. The epigenetic thing is really interesting too. That, um, I think I've shared with you that book that I read, um, called the patriarchy stress disorder. Maybe you've read it. Yes. And she, that really the only concept I took away from that was the ancestral collective and personal trauma that we carry around using our voices and carrying and holding power because your voice is power, right? Yes, absolutely. And then what happens when you have power, like we just talked about, no one wants to lose power, but also when you have power, there are other people who want to take it from you. Mm -hmm. And that can feel scary too. It feels very vulnerable. Yes. And being difficult, like don't be difficult. There's all that conditioning that we as women experience. Don't talk so much. Don't be so bossy. You and I talked about that one time in the Thought Leader Academy. I was like, I don't think I'm a leader because I was told to be not stop being so bossy. But 
how do we, so how do we overcome that? What's, what do you do when you feel the urge to say something and you can't make yourself do it? Yeah. Great question, Kara. So, you know, there's like strategies that we can use. The first strategy is have a really good support network around you. It could be one close friend, could be a few, you know, so a community like your Ravel Collective community, having that support system around so that you have other women that you can go to when you, when you do want to put yourself out there, but you are hesitant, they can kind of cheerlead you. And then when you do do it, and maybe you Maybe you'll get some backlash. Maybe you won't. I think most of the time we don't get backlash. It's mostly in our own heads. But if we do, we have somewhere to go to to validate and to normalize what we're feeling. So definitely have a strong support community. The second thing is to know that there could be some backlash or criticism that happens. And so like put a little sticky note on your monitor or your laptop that says like, that is to be expected. That is normal. Like it's not personal to you. This mm-hmm. is what happens to women in our society and that so that to normalize it, that it's okay, it's going to happen. And if it does happen, you'll get through it. And then the third thing I would say is that the more that you speak up, the easier it is for you to do it because you just like kind of build that you know muscle memory, kind of you just build that for yourself. But then the more you do it, the more you're then encouraging others to do it because they see you doing it and they're more likely than to have the courage to do it themselves. Yeah, I definitely believe that is super important because if you look at someone and they look like you or they sound like you and they're not willing to speak up, it's almost like, well, who's going to go first? Yes, and sometimes you have to be the first one. And then sometimes there's someone else who has paved the way for you, whether it's in your industry, maybe it's a, you know, a conference that you want to speak at, maybe it's in your in your workplace if you work somewhere or maybe it's a client that you're working with and they're maybe they're having some internal things that are going on and that you may be the first person to speak up that paves the way or you may may follow someone else but like keep wearing those grooves down because we need that to happen. Yeah, normalizing women having power and having a voice so that yes. maybe soon we're not we're not where we are. <laughs> we don't keep making this happen again and again. So, can we talk about the concept of a thought leader for a minute? Yes. Cuz in my mind it's still, and I, I, I hate that this is what happens in my head, but when I hear the term thought leader, an old dude shows up in my head and he's got a huge audience and he's making big waves in a big way. And, um, and that doesn't feel like me. So how do we reconcile that concept with who we are? Well, Kara, first, there's, there's a good reason why that's the image that pops into your mind, because that is who we associate with thought leaders, whether it's, you know, books that we've read or videos we've seen or conferences we've been to for sure. And so I want to, I want more women to see themselves as thought leaders so that we can help balance out this ratio so that we don't always think about it as being men. And then the other thing is that thought leadership can look like what you want it to look like. If it's you standing on a stage talking to a thousand people or 5,000 or 10,000 people, and they like they've read your books or they know your intellectual property or whatever, and you want that, go for it. But that, but that does not have to be the vision that you have for yourself. It could be something a lot more intimate and a lot smaller. But what I see as true thought leadership is that you're willing to ask bigger questions. You're willing to shine a spotlight. I mean, places that haven't been talked about much or haven't been recognized or noticed and say, oh, like, look over there. We ha- we're not addressing this, but if we did, a lot of more people would benefit 
in this way. So let's ask these questions and let's look over here instead of just kind of staying on the like the well-trodden path. So not just having opinions, but being willing to ask questions, even if you don't know the answer, maybe? Absolutely. Yes. Because thought leaders don't have to have all of the answers. They need to be willing to ask the questions. It's really for the audience to think about what are the answers for themselves. Like, for example, I'm I, because I have a technology background, I've been getting a lot into artificial intelligence and these new generative AI tools and opportunities that are available that are you know coming up every single week. There's more and more developments that are happening. It's exciting to me. And I certainly don't have all of the answers, but I've been talking about it on my podcast and talking about it like with the women in your group, Kara, and with our clients, because I want them to start thinking about, well, what is this going to look like for your business, for your industry? How can you use these tools? How can you start adapting? And how, what's going, what changes are going to come? I certainly don't know, but I want to make sure that we're having those conversations. I think that's such an important distinction to make. The fact that we don't have to have all the answers. We tend, I will speak for myself, not everybody. I tend to feel like if it's not perfect, I can't put it out there in the world. And if I say something on any kind of stage, whether that's a podcast or, you know, an actual stage that I have to, it has to be right, or I'm going to have to come back and apologize for it. Right. But you're saying we, it's more about asking the questions and, shining light on things that need to be talked about. Yes. Like opening up the conversations. I did an episode on my podcast, I think in February called how to thrive in the age of AI. And I even said, I even said in the podcast episode, look, this feels so messy to me. It's definitely not perfect, but I'm not going to sit on this episode until I feel like it's perfect. Because number one, it's probably not going to ever feel perfect. But number two, like it's important for us to start talking about this now, even before I feel like I have it hundred percent dialed in. Yeah. And I think it work, it's working for you because in my mind, after I get rid of the old dude, you <laughs> like when I think of AI and conversations, I see you in the future as a thought leader, like because you are acting like a thought leader now in AI. So you are a thought leader in AI, even though you're not like AI is not what you lead with, but it's an important conversation you're adding to your thought leadership container. Exactly. Like I'm in here's maybe another good distinction about thought leadership care is like find that angle. For yourself. So for example, my angle is, you know, I have this background in tech, so I have some credibility in it, but I'm not a computer science. I don't have a computer science degree. I don't certainly don't work for an AI company. I'm not doing AI research right now, but I have an angle because I've worked with a lot of women. I understand the importance of women's voices, you know, like our actual voice, but our writings, our experiences, our stories. And I started to see all of these tools like ChatGPT that have been trained on the internet and trained on books, most of that has been written by men. So I'm like, oh, so all these results we're getting back as, trust me, I love it. Like it's fun, right? I love to play with these tools and, and see what ChatGPT comes back with. But I also in the back of my mind, I always know, but where, what is the data it's been trained on and how can we make sure that the biases that we know are baked into all of the stuff that's on the internet and in the books that have been written. How do we make sure that those biases don't get cemented and carried further from here on out? That's a great example of how your thought leadership is evolving and how everyone's would, right? If AI didn't exist in the way that it does now, when you started talking about public speaking and women's voices, now it's AI and women's voices, and you're able to ask different questions because technology has evolved. Exactly. So, so it's never going to be perfect because it's always going to change anyway. 
Which makes it which makes it so much more interesting. I would not want to sit here and talk about the same thing over and over again, no. year in and year out for a decade. No, because that means nothing's changing. Right. Yes. And I love, by the way, that you're talking about women's voices in AI. Um, that that was just like it didn't even occur to me until you pointed it out. And then I was like, oh my God, you're right. What are we doing? Help. Yes. And again, I don't have the answer. Like I don't write the algorithms. I don't train the models, but I'm like, okay, like I want more people to be thinking about these things. And then the bigger players, like the people who do have access to those companies, hopefully more and more of us talking about it, it bubbles back up to them. And I know that they're thinking about this. Like I know that, you know, they talk about, you know, implicit biases in, in AI, but again, it's easy for them to kind of say, oh, we'll address that later. Unless there's more of like a public conversation about it. Yeah. And you mentioned there are other people talking about this too. It's not just you. So what would you say to someone who feels like it's all been said before? I get this a lot too, Kara. And and most things have been talked about before. I mean, there's 8 billion people on the planet, like 6 billion have access to the internet and, and phones or whatever. So yes, there are people out there talking about very similar things that you're talking about, but we can't reach everyone just our, unless we're, you know, uh, the president of the United States, and then we have a really big megaphone. But for most of us, like I have my little slice of the internet, you know, I have my communities that I have influence in, or that I talk to. And that's fantastic. Speaking engagements, podcasts, whatever it happens to be someone else who also maybe talks about similar things to me, they have their little slice of the internet. And like, there's so much abundance, there's room for all of us to have to have the impact in the places that we can. So it doesn't have to be a giant stage. No, no, it does not. Unless unless you want it to be. And if you want it to be, go for it. But it doesn't have to be. Asking questions on in a smaller container, in a smaller space can be just as important thought leadership as standing on a big stage with a megaphone. Yes. And maybe, um, as was in my case with the Thought Leader Academy, uh, stepping stone. Because <laughs> I ran up, up against a lot of permission levels and self-limiting beliefs when I was doing that with you guys. And I just was just so uncomfortable, even though I felt really good in the container and it felt very safe in your program, I would come out of it and I would be thinking about speaking and just got, I just was having such a hard time wrapping my head around this. Um, and I mean, and I think I'm, it's always going to be an evolution probably, but I am so much more comfortable and confident saying something that I want to say without wondering if it's okay to say it. At this point, you feel more comfortable in smaller settings. Uh, no, no, just in general. And it's um, progressively larger settings is Mm -hmm. what I would say. I would say that that even though I didn't walk away feeling like I was ready to hop on a stage with a hundred thousand people out there, I feel like that's probably somewhere in the future. If I want it to be, it it doesn't. It feels gradual. It doesn't have to be huge. And I I also understand now having talk to you that I can make an impact at a smaller scale that ripples. Yes. And I think for anything in life, you, you like, you step into it bit by bit. If you think about it, you know, if you want to run an Ironman or compete in an Ironman competition, which is, you know, swimming and biking and running, that's a lot. Like you can, like, I could not say, oh, I'm going to sign up for an Ironman this weekend and then not have done a year, at least a year's worth of training and preparation for it. The same thing. No, no, I would never stick someone like here, go talk to even 10,000. Well, I don't know about a hundred thousand people, but even 10,000 <laughs> people. No, that would be terrifying. Like and who's never really spoken in front of people before. I think that would be kind of mean to do that. So no, like work yourself up. 
I agree. You don't off the couch that. No, definitely not. Don't do that. Do some podcast interviews first. Go talk to your local like business groups first. You know, then do some conferences and then keep going. Okay, good. So we're we are in agreement that we don't have to jump all the way in and that we can still make an impact and use our voices in progressively um more visible ways, maybe we'll say. Yes. And for some of us, like we like the intimate settings. Some people, you know, really love that maybe 20 to 50 people in a room where they can have a little bit more of a personal connection with more of the audience members. And if that's what you love to do, and that's where you really feel like your strengths are and where you shine, then stick to that. I know there's other clients that we've worked with where they want the big stages. Like, you know, they've done TEDx talks. They want to do keynotes on big stages because that's what fuels them. So figure out what fuels you and the work that you do. Yeah, that's such an important point. I'm always harping on what's good, what's right for you. Right. And I know like there are a lot of introverts in Ravel. And so if they're listening, they know that they can make an impact without having to betray their introvert tendencies or make it feel bad for them. I want to circle back really quick to the idea that we're not repeating what someone else has said, that, that it's worth saying the thing you want to say. If you have something you want to say, even if it seems like someone has maybe touched on that before, you talk a lot about stories mm-hmm. and how we have to use stories and how impactful they are in our um, in our messages. Can you share a little bit about how our stories shape our thought leadership? Yes, absolutely. So I I think about these like four layers of thought leadership. Your foundation layer is your expertise. So what is it that you do in your work? Like, you know, that you would be talking about. The second layer is your big idea. So what's your perspective or your angle on your area of expertise, your industry, the work that you do? So then a lot of people stop there. Okay, so they have their area of expertise. Maybe they'll have a perspective on it and then that's it. But the third layer is really important, which is your personal story or kind of like your, or like your collection of personal experiences that have brought you to where you are today and got you, number one, interested in this topic, but also led you to this particular perspective. Did you have a crisis of confidence experience where something really shook your understanding of yourself or the world around you? Did you have a paradigm shift where you thought one way, like a mental model, but then something happened and you shifted your mental model and that's led you to a new understanding of your work? Did something happen when you were growing up where you developed certain, you know, we can call them coping skills or strategies, but maybe like it, it made you really empathetic or like, you know, it, you, it led you to some of the qualities you have today that you bring into your thought leadership, into your perspective. So I like to think of those things. And it comes to mind as one of our clients, Tammy Lally, when I worked with her in her TEDx talk that now has over 2 million views, she talks about money shame. And so she took the work of Brene Brown around vulnerability and shame. And she said, okay, but Brene has not talked a lot about money shame. Like what happens to us as individuals and families when we carry that? So she shared a very personal and unfortunately very tragic story of something that happened in her family. So she shared that for the, the opening of her TEDx talk and then led into this idea of money shame. Now she could have stood on that stage and said, okay, like, you know, if you have a problem with your finances, make a budget, you know, cut out the extra expenses, like blah, blah, blah. Like, well, we don't need to hear that. People connected to her because of that personal story. And that's what then helped to differentiate her thought leadership message. That's a powerful talk that she did. Um, 
I haven't listened to the whole thing. So if it's okay, I'll include the link so yes. that I and everyone else can go listen to it. But you do share part of that speech where she shares her story in the very beginning. And it's really like, it draws you in and it really like I'm in tears, right? Mm-hmm. She's in tears. It's pretty powerful. Absolutely. So, so you do some, the, I think the first workshop I did with you was a storytelling workshop last year. Yes. Um, and you're doing a new one pretty soon here, right? Yes. Yeah, so we, so we, our thought leader Academy is eight weeks long. And in that, as you know, you work on your thought leadership message and you develop your signature talk. So we, that's the focus of that. And then we do these workshops every few months. We do one on storytelling. So to really help you to kind of identify and write your key stories. And then we also do one called the business of speaking, which is around speaking proposals, what to charge for speaking, how to find speaking engagements. How do we find our stories? Yeah. Well, so we have certain like categories or prompts. So I mentioned like crisis of confidence, something that happened that really shook you, a paradigm shift, anything that happened when you were growing up, kind of family-wise, why did you start your business, like a business origin story? So I like to think about what are the stories that you and your family always tell, right? Like, you know, when you get together for the holidays, oh, remember the time when says and such happened. So those stories, the stick in your mind. The other things is like when you had a, a pivot in your life, right? Something happened and then it caused you to make a decision to do something differently. Whether that decision you look back at was either, you know, quote unquote, the right decision, or maybe could have been a different decision at the time. It was a decision you made. Why? And like, where did it lead to next? So I started to, I try to think of those kind of like moments, those experiences in life as your key stories, like your main stories. And then you may have like little anecdotes or little, you know, client stories interspersed. That's helpful because when I, I know when I started working with you and looking at some of these things, I I was having a hard time finding anything that felt important enough to actually like layer into my thought leadership. Um, and, and I don't know if that's conditioning or me normalizing things that were painful or difficult, um, but it's helpful to have some frameworks like that you provide for us to find those stories and at least examine whether or not that's something that can be translated that other people would find a common thread in and relate to. Yes. And here, so that your story does not have to be traumatic. Like some people's stories are, you know, sadly traumatic and I would not wish traumatic experiences on anyone, but like those are the ones that kind of capture our attention but they don't have to be traumatic. I share a story in my keynotes and I've shared it on my podcast about this professional experience I had in local politics where everything was great until it wasn't. And the people who supported me decided that they didn't want to and they started bullying me and I ended up resigning as the chairperson of the Democratic Party where I was instead of like standing my ground and continuing on as the chairperson. And a lot of you know other things professionally were closed off as a result of that decision that I made. Now, I share that I'm going to more detail on the story, but I share that not because the people in the audience have had that experience. I would say no one that I've ever spoken to in the audience have had that particular experience. But I say to them, have you ever had a time in your life where you also were really passionate and you were really engaged in something? And then you got that backlash. You faced that resistance, whether it from other people or maybe something internally within yourself. And then what did you do? So that's how I connect something that was very specific to me, but then to what the audience can reflect on for themselves. Yeah, that's an important kind of thing to think about even in business, like aside from the thought leadership thing, because 
there's going to be backlash here and there. There's going to be difficulty. Um, but what's important? Like what's, what's worth pushing through that discomfort for, um, can be kind of helpful yeah. in finding like that wire, that thread maybe. Yes. And the point of that, I reason I included that story in this keynote is I talked about why if you're not facing any resistance whatsoever and what you feel like is your purpose, you may not be pushing far enough. What? Okay. We have some, some people in my life, right? I have some people in my life right now who are feeling a little bit lost. Like maybe they need to make a pivot or they're uncomfortable and they're not really sure what direction to go. That feels like maybe some missing purpose. How is our stories a good way that we can uncover some of that purpose? So, okay. I'm not a life coach or a therapist. (laughs) I consider you a story expert though. Okay. So I would say like, I look for the threads. Like I really feel like we keep coming back to the things that are important to us in our lives, no matter how much, like we may take a job for the time being because it's what it's what it's available and we need it and it works for us. But you probably will find even in those jobs you've taken that maybe were short term or didn't really feel like a great fit you probably ended up doing something in that job that's still connected to that thread. I think about jobs that I've had where I would find ways to like create an event, like a one day event to support women, right? (laughs) Like I just like, I couldn't help myself. Like I would just do these things. I didn't really, they weren't really conscious. It wasn't like I set out like, oh, I'm I'm in this new job. Let me find a way to support women. And it just kind (laughs) of happened. (laughs) It's funny you say that because I I've been all over the place in my career and like my husband's giving me a hard time because he's like, could you just stick with the one thing? And I felt bad about it for a really long time until I sat down a couple of years ago and I wrote a literal timeline, but I didn't stop there. I, I kind of cataloged why I made that move or what I was thinking when I left that job or like, what was the problem and why did that work or why did that not work? And it really did kind of help create, I don't know if the stories came out of it for me, but it, it helped me at least find the thread of the like, okay, this at least makes sense to me now. I can see where I was off track. Well, what was the thread? Um, Freedom, having freedom, which is tied to being a woman and an entrepreneur and, um, not wanting to be controlled. So that's why I'm really passionate about being an entrepreneur because I'm unemployable and I don't want to do things just because they've always been done one way because usually some guy's telling me it has to be done that way. So yes. I want to do things in a way that makes sense to me for some a good reason. So I can totally relate. You to are on boss <laughs> to do that. Yes, yes, yes. You definitely get all the freedom and the, and the autonomy and all the responsibility too. Yeah, it's I sort of the last time I quit a job and finally went back to like work for myself and it got really hard and difficult. I was like, this can't be no, like this has to be easier than this. This is way too hard. Um, But I also wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. I was just following the going through the motions, doing all the shoulds, which is not helpful. Anyway, um, what do you what do you have? Oh, you know what? I don't have to ask. I know exactly what you have. You have a quiz. I do. So we have on our website, it's a quiz that will help you to to identify your speaker archetype. And this is really about your communication strength. So even if you don't consider yourself a public speaker, you can still take the quiz and it will help. It will give you one of the four archetypes that I've identified as far as like the types of, of speakers and communicators that are out there. So you'll see what your archetype is, 
where your strengths lie and then what are some things you can add to it just to kind of like make you an even more kind of multidimensional speaker and communicator. So it's fun. It's 10 questions, multiple choice. And then you, so you go through, take the, do the questions and then you get your result. I've done it. It was fun. It was a fun quiz. Yeah. And I think you sent me an email. There was an email after that had more information and some like actionable tips. So it's a fun quiz. And I love that it's four archetypes, not what is it? 12 or 16 or something like that, that they're actually like, there are all these archetypes in most places. So there's four categories, which is nice. Yes. I try to keep it simple. And then you, yours was the spellbinding storyteller. No surprise. I don't think because (laughs) I think I feel like you really like, you like to think about stories and, and I do. Yeah. And that's probably why we got like, so I, I went off on a little tangent here with you today and we asking you story questions that maybe weren't, weren't in line with what we were talking about, but I, I do, I love the idea of stories. And, um, I, I got so far away from stories when I was business blogging for so long that it's taken me a long time to get back to where it doesn't have to have a formula that is business related, where it can just be a story that is relatable in some way. There's no SEO happening here. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Some of our most powerful stories are really just because they connect us to our audience. And like, there doesn't have to be a business goal or a marketing goal. I mean, sure. Some of the things we do, we have to think, keep those things in mind, but really our best stories are the ones that are just so that we're human, especially in this age of AI. Like that's, what's going to help differentiate us. Oh my God. I know. I know. Um, some of our best stories, I think the ones that end up being really funny too are the tragic ones after enough distance. Like some things will never have enough distance to be funny, right? But like when you say something in an interview that's inappropriate, maybe five years later, that's kind of funny. Right. Like it doesn't have like major consequences. It was just kind of like, oh, right. that, that didn't turn out that great. You're like, oh, we're just through the. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm excited. Everybody should go take that quiz and check out Carol's workshops and the Thought Leader Academy. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's like as somebody who felt like she couldn't find her voice at a certain point in midlife and really desperately wanted to be able to use it. It was critical and so sincerely, like so helpful. And you create such a safe container and you, there's so much information in there. I'm, I'm not trying to sell anybody, but it is, it is a great program. It's, it works. Oh, it's amazing. Well, thank you so, so much, Kara. I so appreciate that. You. And I really have enjoyed getting to know you better over the past few Same. months. Same. I love talking to you. I think you're amazing. Um, So can everybody can come connect with you on LinkedIn too, if they want to, right? Yes. LinkedIn is the one place that I hang out online. So yes, come connect with me on LinkedIn. Love to, to see your face there. All right. Thank you, Carol. Thank you.